Hello and welcome. I'm Demir from Index Ventures, and this is Daily Consumer. This show is focused on highlighting startups that are improving how we experience our daily lives from the perspective of the founders behind them. You can learn more at daily-consumer.com. Loom is a video-based communication tool that is spreading like wildfire in our new remote work-driven world. On this episode, we dive into the winding history of the product that became Loom. We also learn about Joe Thomas, the CEO and co-founder, who shares how his passion for product emerged and how he uses his own product to manage the company. A big welcome to Joe Thomas. Joe, really appreciate you making the time in your busy workday to come and chat with us. Maybe just for background for all the listeners who may not be as familiar with me, I'm Demir. I am an investor at a firm called Index Ventures. We invest in companies from seed through growth stage, both in the US and Europe. And what I get most excited about is conversations like these, meeting founders like Joe, getting to hear about the passion that these founders have to create real change in the world and channeling that passion into really unique and differentiated products. So I am very excited to have Joe on this chalk group with me to tell us a little bit about the journey and building Loom. I know it's been a non-linear journey, Joe, so maybe we can talk about some of the trials and tribulations as well. But thanks for making the time. Totally. Thank you for having me on. And honestly, the question prompts that you sent over in advance to Mir just made me take a step back and realize that you've kind of been with Loom for quite a long time in informal way, like knowing the journey that we've been on for the last three and a half, four years since going to market. So I'm really excited to kind of like share some of those. It's not all upsides. It may look like it from the outside, but a lot of pain, a lot of lessons learned along the way. And I'm excited to share some of them. I appreciate it. And shame on me and shame on us for not being investors in the company. But hopefully you know that we're avid supporters nonetheless. Um, But I thought we could start the conversation by just hearing a little bit about your background, Joe. You are a founder running a company in Silicon Valley now, but you grew up in Illinois. But you did some very different things prior to starting companies. So I was hoping you could just walk us through some of that. Totally. Yep. So I'm a cornfield boy. I was born in the suburbs of Chicago, but not officially. It it wasn't actually cornfields. It's just what most people from the coast think. I ended up going to Indiana University to study economics. And the reason why I did so is because I come from family of entrepreneurs on both sides, but they're not Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. They're Midwest entrepreneurs. So they're printing company or running a golf course, or one of my uncles has a hunting channel that's served up on local television. That's his entrepreneurial journey. And so I've always been raised in a more entrepreneurial family. And when I went to school, I got advice from multiple folks that I really respect in my family, just get a good business foundation. And that actually was accounting. I did not fall in love with accounting (laughs) in the first year. So I switched over to economics. And what was fascinating is my freshman year was the 2008 market crash. And when I went to go look at the internships that econ funneled me to, I didn't want to go work for any of those institutions at that point. And so I actually ended up starting a creative agency with my childhood friend. And that allowed me to One, pick up a new skill set, which Indiana University provided the Adobe Creative Suite for free, which was amazing. And then the second thing was just getting more intimately involved and getting an understanding of startups. And so doing logo design development, web design and development. And during that time, mobile app design and development was relatively new. 
And so got my hands dirty in a lot of those things and got addicted to it. Much to my parents' chagrin, I did nothing with my time at school and ended up moving out to Santa Monica after college and continuing to work on the design agency. So that's a little bit of my background and how I ended up in California. Now there's a few more chapters before I got up to Silicon Valley, but you know, we'll work our way there. Amazing. It reminds me a little bit of the movie, The Accountant. I don't know if you've ever seen it, the Ben Affleck movie, but <laughs> yeah. the guy is supposed to be an accountant in his day job, but he's secretly this kind of global super talent in being a hitman and broker for all of these powerful people. It's cool to hear that accounting did not stick with you and, and instead you went down a very different route <laughs> around creative services. I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like running that agency in the early days. I mean, how, how did you get clients and how did you get to work on that for the first three years of your post-undergraduate life? I can tell you that it was an absolute grind. And one of the hardest lessons I learned that was incredibly beneficial in terms of starting a SaaS company was that you can't be spending a material percentage of your time trying to accumulate customers. We'll get to that lesson in more detail a little bit later. But really working on the agency itself, it was in the early days, essentially doing work for borderline free. You have to build out your portfolio and you have to hone your skill set and craft. And the way that I always thought about it was that it wasn't about the dollars up front. It was about building a skill set. So how can I continue to be a better designer, become a better product person, become a better salesperson? That was really the big focus while I was at undergrad. It was nice to earn enough money to pay the rent and bar tabs, but revenue was not the primary motivation. It was figuring out what I wanted to do later on. Then you leave the comfort of college and classes, and then all of a sudden you get hit in the face by the real world. You have to start paying back those student loans. You have to pay rent. It did become more about money. And so having built up that skill set and that portfolio allowed us to start working with more legitimate companies. We moved out to Santa Monica. At the time, it was newly coined Silicon Beach and it had like a real community to it. There was a lot of hustling that was involved. We did a bunch of tech-oriented meetups to try and find startups that had funding or legitimate revenue and tried to basically sell them on consultants that would allow them to do a rebrand or work on certain marketing landing pages. And what we quickly realized was that most companies were not willing to pay for that, especially the sorts of companies that we were working with that relatively early in their journey, what they wanted was accelerated feature development. And so that was what we got into more and more after we moved to LA. And very quickly, my role started more towards hourly versus project basis. I got deeper and deeper with certain clients. They had a product management position open at one of my favorite companies at the time. It was called MediaPass. And they said, you want to join full-time as a product manager. It seemed like a great use of my skill set, which was product, creativity, analytics, and then business strategy overall. Like, where are we trying to go? And I was like, this sounds really exciting. I'd love to do this. And so that's when I ejected from the creative agency because it was a grind to constantly get clients. And I felt a natural pull towards developing my skill set as product manager. And so I, I made the leap and got a more of a nine to five. That was very much so not a nine to five, but you know, it felt that way leaving my business behind. Going from a world of trying to generate an income project by project to earning a salary must have been a nice transition. I ran a resume writing service in college and 
let's just say it wasn't very successful because I was out there scouring for students to help and could only find one every, every once in a while. It was tough to be in the client services business. I'd be curious to hear how those startup experiences went, Joe, and, and how that led you down the entrepreneurship path. I have to imagine that you were quite energized by working at those startups, but maybe at some point you felt like you wanted more control over your own destiny. I'm curious how that went. It was something that manifested pretty quickly and I think was a big learning experience for myself. I had been running my own business. I hadn't had a true nine to five where I reported into a manager for 40 hours a week. Within the first three or four months that I was at this company called MediaPass, I had a lot of big ideas for the company myself. And there was quite a few conversations where I felt like I was pushing the founder and CEO in very material ways that was kind of divergent from the path that they want to take the company on. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that whatever organization that you're involved in, you should always try and globally maximize it through whatever means that you possibly can, even if it's pushing your ideas up a little bit. I think that what I learned over the course of time is like how to shape and sell my ideas in a more tactful way to bring people along with me and get them excited versus sharing my ideas in such a way that might be frustrating for them. That I'm like, why don't you get it? Why aren't we on the same page? So it was incredibly energizing to work on a product that was essentially a B2B offering, but it had a B2C component. We were a digital subscription offering that helped convert individuals looking at local newspaper websites. This was when the advertising model was just at the beginning of showing signs that it wasn't profitable for digital publications, so they needed to switch over to a subscription model. So it had that more creative consumer outlet of how do we build a beautiful paywall while also having the B2B component of how do we sell into these media holding companies that own 50, 100, 150 newspapers and how did we get them to drag and drop this technology onto all their publications. It was a fascinating challenge. It was not necessarily a bad idea. We were just early because these media holding companies didn't realize the fact that advertising model was going to continue to slide over the coming five, 10 years. So with that, two different things of the founder potentially being a little bit more annoyed with me and then the business model being a little bit too early after about a year I moved on to another company called My Life, which was interesting because the same person who had founded and primarily funded MediaPass had also started this company, My Life. The reason why I was excited to go over there is because MediaPass was a 20-person company. My Life was a 300-person company. It was an order of magnitude larger. There was a leadership team there that I had built relationships with that I felt like I could learn a ton from if they took me under their wing. So I hopped over there to build a product from zero to one. It was a perfect problem set for me of building a new product for them underneath great leadership in a larger organization. You can always connect the dots looking backwards. And so it's a little clearer for me to tell that story now. In my gut, it just felt like it was the right opportunity for me and that I was ready to move on from MediaPass at that point. Makes sense. It sounds like you got quite a lot of product ownership at my life. You were able to take an internal product from zero to one. Did that inspire you to want to go and define your own product to build? Was that what gave you the motivation and confidence to break out on your own and to start to test some of your own ideas? Totally. I think that every turn of my career at this point has always kind of pointed me back to the fact that I want to be 
a large owner of my own destiny and have the ability to do so. I think that the experience over the course of the two years that I was at my life of building zero to one, of being able to orchestrate across a team of 20 people that I was overseeing and the leaders that I had talked about that had taken me under their wings saying that you seem to have a natural inclination for this. That certainly gave me confidence. It also helped sharpen my skills around building a zero to one SaaS offering. So my life ended up building a subscription product that you can think of it similar to LifeLock. It was a privacy-oriented product for digital assets. We were the first company to ever provide an email data breach product where you would sign up and we would tell you exactly what was breached where and what the remediation steps were. I would say a year at my life and feeling like I was coming up on the ceiling of learning or it slowing down materially, I actually started looking around for who the co-founders were. I think when I'm starting a company, the most important thing is who are you going to be building this business with? There's unlimited ideas that you could work on, but the more important thing is who are you working on it with? Really, it was a hurry up and wait scenario over the course of nine months where I had ended up meeting Vinay and Shahid and becoming really close with them. We had a great distributions of design engineering and product manager. And there was just this moment in time where we all looked at each other and said, we're not really that happy at our jobs. Should we start working on something together? And that was the catalyzing moment. So always knew that I wanted to work on something on my own again. And I think that every experience that I've been part of, there has been organic feedback that working on my own thing was the right thing to do for me. So you get together with Shahid and Vinay. And I think at the time, you guys were starting to work together in LA. I'm curious how you landed on the original idea, which was a company called OpenTest. Just what some of those early conversations look like. Did you guys get funding from the start? How did you even get this company off of the ground? And what was it doing at day one? The funny thing is, when I was saying, starting with the people, we showed up one Sunday to a virtual whiteboard. I was back in Illinois visiting my sister at the time. Vinay was in San Francisco and Shahid was in LA. And we hopped on a video call. We said, every individual needs to bring three ideas to the table. So we had nine. And we talked through each of them. And we really just picked one and started working on it. The core of what we've always been working on at Loom and OpenTest back in the day is video. We believe that it was an incredibly powerful medium, that consumer video was everywhere, but it wasn't in the workplace. But we chose very specific and niche applications of it. OpenTest was actually looking at usertesting.com, saying that it felt like a fairly antiquated experience. And how can we build a next-gen version of that? The first application that we did was we wanted to build out a product expert network where any company can upload a product requirement doc, some mocks, a prototype, even like a marketing landing page that was already built and get feedback from product designers, engineers, marketers at the world's best companies. And this was just Videsh, Shahid and I tapping into our existing networks and asking them, would they be willing to provide feedback for like they set their own hourly rate at $100, $150, We provided this layer in between that allowed them to really seamlessly and easily provide video feedback on whatever asset was sent in. Now, we really quickly heard from the companies that we wanted to sell into, those that were a little bit further along than super early stage startups, that they felt like they had these product experts in-house that they weren't willing to spend $500 for getting feedback on something that they felt like they were already paying their employees to do. 
but they were like, we'd love this sort of video feedback from our real-time <laughs> users. And so we, we immediately said, okay, that feels like a much bigger opportunity. So we built a video recorder that was powered by a Chrome extension that hooked into a survey platform that started out with MPS and asked users after they answered the MPS to be like, hey, would you be willing to give video feedback? We knew that it was going to be a very small percentage of users that would give feedback at that point, but we would target companies that had a really high volume of traffic on their website. So this was Soylent at their peak and Edmunds, which is like a card company that does millions of monthly active users on their website. And they were able to collect hundreds of videos through this video feedback platform. And then we heard from them that people who were watching these videos that had a really cool camera bubble that we stole as an element from Snapchat and the screen recording and the microphone, they were like, I actually just want to record a video like this for my own purposes. We all looked at each other and we were like, this is very easy. Like the whole system of NPS and platform and video dashboard is relatively complex. Just providing the recording utility, Occam's Razor, which is like the simplest solution is usually the right one. We just decoupled it and we launched it as its own standalone product called OpenVid, one of my biggest marketing faux pas in my career because people were so confused about OpenTest and how OpenVid intersected with each other. But we launched that in June of 2016 and it's been off to the races ever since. It's incredible. I mean, it's so fun to look back on it retrospectively, right? You get together with Vinay and Shahid and you build OpenTest. In many ways, it reminds me of your agency business, right? You're facilitating outsourced services for your customers. You realize maybe the demand isn't that strong for these types of services, but you built this kernel of a product that really does seem to be catching on. Another analogy is Slack or Discord. Some people may remember this, but Slack was actually a gaming company in its earliest days, as was Discord. And what they realized over time was not that many people wanted to play their game, but a lot of people loved the chat functionality and wanted to use the chat functionality in their own products. That ended up scaling and becoming the big success story. So just pattern matching, it sounds like you had a very similar type of story that caused you to go all in on what would become Loom as a product. I'd love for you to tell the story of taking it from OpenVid and, and rebranding it to Loom and just what the early days of the Chrome extension looked like. Did people discover this utility on their own and, and just start using it in mass? How did the usage start to grow for this, what you call kind of simple screen recording tool? I've been a huge believer in viral growth. If you can map the viral growth and overlap it as much as possible with the core value that you're delivering to the world and make that as simple as possible, that's when you can get super viral products that spread themselves. That's been the case with Loom. The story that I like to tell is that the weekend that we launched, I felt horrible because we had been grinding it out for seven months. An insider story with this group, we actually had run out of money. My personal friends had loaned us 10K to get us another 45 days. I had to go to one of my childhood friends' weddings in Chicago. And this gentleman was also at that wedding. I was there feeling so guilty for not being back in San Francisco, continuing to grind it out to make sure that we were able to return him his money by raising funds. So anyways, we had launched that weekend. Like We couldn't wait any longer. We were running out of money. And I felt guilty because I couldn't skip my friend's wedding. And we launched on a Thursday night at midnight, aka Friday morning. 
by Saturday, when we were looking at the user metrics and seeing that the day after we launched, we were actually seeing more signups and more recordings than we had seen on launch day. I turned to my now wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time, and I go, we fucking did it. I don't know what we did, but we did it. The core value of Loom is you record, somebody takes a link that is automatically generated for them, and then they send it to somebody else and it pulls them into the Loom ecosystem. What we got a crash course on over the first six months after we launched is why is the world seeing value in what it is that we're delivering? And we honed in on a few key things. People saw disproportionate value with video messages at work when they were communicating with those that they don't share wall space with. This was both for teams that were distributed in in nature. So whether you're a HubSpot or a Slack that has offices distributed all around the world and communicating internally, but it was also being used for external. So I'm a salesperson who wants to do a demo of my product. I am a support person who wants to create some help center material. It was being used 50-50 internal and external. Really quickly, we realized that this wasn't going to be a single persona a single use case offering that this was potentially a change that the world was ready for, which is a new mode of communication. We actually decided that we were going to be a 50% remote company. So that way we could dog food that component. I think what's been fascinating was over the past seven months of shelter and plant loom being disproportionately valuable when you're distributed or remote, it has been a material shift mindset from folks saying, I don't know if I'll use this video messaging thing. I'm intrigued. What should I use it for? I think that it's taken about three to five years of mindset shift of video messaging and what it can be for the workplace and and compressed it to a few months. Before we get into the COVID impact and and how you think about Bloom usage accelerating and, and what the permanent impact might be on your company, I'd love to just click in a little bit more into post-product market fit Loom. So you launched this extension, you're seeing the litany of use cases, whether it's someone wanting to communicate to a colleague internally or a sales rep communicating externally. What do you decide to do from there? You have this kind of kernel that's working. How do you decide to expand on that across desktop apps, across mobile apps? Was the roadmap always pretty clear or did you have to take leaps of faith and kind of de-risk some of those bets over time? <laughs> this is something from Bezos. He says that you'll never have perfect information, right? What amount of leap of faith that you take is dependent on how much information that you have. But for us, I think especially in the early days, the different paths that you can take lead you to very different destinations when you follow them for years and years. We made a few key decisions early on that I think has been great guiding doors stars for us. We did not want to verticalize for any one persona. We wanted to build video messaging for everybody at work. With it being a generalized communication utility, what do we need to do? It is a very hard problem to solve. So we needed to stay very disciplined about the sorts of things that we developed on our platform. I think that a lot of product is about what you decide not to build, not what you decide to build. For us, a lot of the early decisions were, do we want to have a really robust home for people to come to so that way it's another inbox for you to check? No, we actually integrate really deeply and seamlessly with the ecosystem by just providing you a link to disseminate a Loom video with whatever channel you're already communicating, whether it's email or Slack. We didn't necessarily want you to have to come to Loom.com to get the value. 
we wanted to serve up the value through recording and giving you that link and making it really easy to share. With that being the core value and trying to remain disciplined with that, we decided to expand to additional surface areas to increase exposure and remind folks that video messaging could be part of their core communication stack. Also, what's really interesting about video is that it's a hard and fickle medium to work with. And the way that you get the level of performance that Zoom has been able to provide is you have to get, quote unquote, closer to the metal. So Loom had to build desktop apps in order to get more performance because our initial Chrome extension, it was great. It's like a couple clicks to install. You're ready to record right away. Chrome provides a lot of libraries right out of the box for you to build on top of. But when you're looking to record in anything more than 720p, or you're looking to not crush the CPU as somebody is recording, you need to build native desktop apps. If we wanted to build the best-in-class product utility, we needed to get closer to the metal and get more performance. And that's why we decided to expand surface areas. We wanted to remain disciplined, and we wanted to get more performance out of our recorders. And how much did customer or user feedback play a role in product roadmap setting? One of the examples that I oftentimes think back to is just how quickly Loom spread within HubSpot specifically. I'm curious how much weight you put on that kind of North Star customer. You know, you have this model organization that is truly a group of power users. Did you just respond to their product requests and ignore all the rest of the long tail usage or... Were there other ways that you could set North Stars for your product? There's absolutely going to be a balance between how can you check a customer's box for the requests that they have while also pairing it up with the change that you're trying to bring to the world. The classic saying from Henry Ford is, if I ask people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. I think that that is true to a degree when you're building software, but not exactly. You brought up HubSpot fascinating case study of a company that even with individual product experience of having to share links with one another, not necessarily having an invite to a Loom workspace for them to get into, we were able to spread to over 3,000 employees naturally and organically. And I think a big part of that was when you're building workplace communication and collaboration software, what they want to understand is how does it integrate with our existing workflows with Loom specifically and how to enable HubSpot They were one of the key companies that we were able to go to Slack with, one of our investors, but they weren't willing to build custom code for us unless they understood that there was a ton of customer demand for Loom videos to expand in line. We were able to use a lot of feedback that we got from HubSpot saying that they're already sharing thousands of links in the Slack instance. And if we could just keep them in the Slack instance, which is good for Slack, and they can watch those videos in line, it would be a win-win-win across the board. That's an example of how we were able to leverage some of the customer feedback from HubSpot directly to influence our product roadmap. But what I would say is that we've always been really conscious of understanding from a macro perspective. We had a public-facing roadmap on Trello for years. We had that go live in like July or August of 2016. So only a month or two after we went live with the actual product. And now to this day, we're actually powered by product board at this point with a public roadmap. So that way we get macro perspective on what is most valuable to the entire user base while also being keen and attuned to some of the most important organizations on Loom, how to better serve them. 
So it really is trying to build out or get as much data and information flowing to you to build out that intuition around what's most important to build next. I have to commend you on the huge business development win you had with Slack, just for the group's context. Prior to Slack greenlighting Loom as as a native integration, any video that you shared in Slack, you had to click the video file and it would open up a separate player. You couldn't actually play the video in line in Slack. Once Slack saw the value of Loom, Loom became the first way that you could consume video natively in the product. And to pull that off as I think at the time a series A stage company is truly tremendous. So what an amazing win for Loom in its early days, Joe. I will give credit to Slack too, by the way. If you're building a company right now and you can work with Slack, they've been incredible partners to us. I don't think that they would have done that if they weren't investors, but certainly it was some persistence on our end that made it happen. I'd love to transition, Joe, and talk a little bit about this world that we're in. So now everyone is working from home, working largely asynchronously. It really does feel like the perfect time for Loom to spread. I'm curious if you can comment on just how tremendous the impact has been and how you think work is being rewritten. Are the rules of engagement for work changing tremendously? We'd love to get your view. This is something that continues to evolve over time. We actually haven't even run a survey with our own employees to understand what their needs or wants are in an office. The reason being is that I think that people's relationship to working from home versus working in an office has certainly kind of evolved over time. Part of that is, do you have kids at home with you? Are they on summer break? Do you have significant others? And are they working from home and on a bunch of video calls? So I think that there's just there's fluctuations in terms of what people's perceptions of benefits of work from home are. As that relates to Loom, I had mentioned the fact that video messaging is really powerful for those communicating with those that you don't share wall space with. So when COVID hit, we were able to be valuable to the ecosystem in a more material way because everybody was working from home. As a result of that, we did end up changing our pricing and packaging back in March to help people transition into this new dynamic that they're working from. As it relates to how it's going to impact work going forward. What's really fascinating to me is you keep hearing these companies that are coming out with policies that permanently allowing people to work from home. What I've always said, and I think that this rings true for a lot of different situations, is it tends to be power to the people, or at least you hope that it would be this way. When more and more people say that they want the flexibility of working from home, They want the flexibility of being able to come into the office one or two days a week when maybe the significant other is working from home and taking a bunch of video calls. Providing somebody with that level of flexibility, to me, is the future. What organizations have to do is set up their organizational communication and collaboration principles to allow for that flexibility where only a subset of the team or the group that's having a particular meeting will be in office. So everybody's going to have to move to more remote first principles. There's subtle little things. We actually have, if everybody's calling in from the same meeting room and one person is remote, every single person calls in from their individual laptop so that one square represents each individual face. And to me, remote first is, is so much more than that, but it's just an example of power to the people, more flexibility, and then you have to make it work from a communication and cultural perspective. This is my point from the snapshot of time, and it continues to unfold in really interesting ways. I think one other thing that I've seen firsthand in this environment is that the priorities of people are being rewritten now, right? I think we for so long operated in this country under the mindset that 
work comes before everything else. And now I think we're realizing that spending time with kids is extremely valuable. Spending time with your parents is extremely valuable. And maybe you shouldn't have to sacrifice on that. So I think one of the biggest changes that will come out of this environment is that work is going to shift from being inherently synchronous, everyone having to be in the same meeting at the same time or in the office at the same time, to potentially much more asynchronous. We all have the same goals. We're all trying to execute on the same things. But the specific time of day or hour of day that we're working on a project can be more flexible. And as a result, I think Loom should benefit tremendously because I can share information on what I'm working on, my progress that I'm making, and have many people consume that information through your tool. That's certainly a world that I like to imagine, and and I hope we're headed down that path. Fingers crossed on a lot of different levels for me. Absolutely for me, I think that life hopefully becomes a little bit more fluid, where work and life become one in a way that like you're not online at all times, like your kid has a soccer game that you want to go to that starts at 4pm on a Tuesday, but not having to feel like you're sacrificing your career as a result of your ability to move up in your career. I think that this sort of flexibility and fluidness to work life is going to be great for everybody all the way around. One last topic, Joe. I'll try to tie a few things together here. First off, I want to say that you're one of the best dog fooders of your product that I've ever met. I mean, I truly have to commend how you evangelize the usage of Loom. And for the audience, Joe oftentimes will share updates on his company to his investors via Loom videos. When he's engaging with investors like he has with us in the past, he is even submitting Loom versions of his pitch, which makes the world much more efficient instead of all of us having to get in a room at the same time. When he's doing things like announcing new job openings at Loom or product updates, those are often shared via Loom videos as well. I just have to say I admire that a lot in you, Joe. I'm curious how that plays into recruiting. So you're evangelizing this big change in in workplace behavior. Is Loom at the core of how you're attracting people to the company? Is it how you're selling your candidates? I'm curious what that process looks like because you've done what seems like a pretty tremendous job in in attracting high quality talent to your company. We probably go a little bit overboard with how we use Loom in our (laughs) recruitment process. It really is top to bottom. When we have recruiters reaching out to prospective talent, a lot of times that can involve either if it's a potential VIP candidate, a personalized Loom, but if it's actually just reaching out to a bunch of folks, then the hiring manager will have recorded a one-minute Loom to give them a little bit more sense of themselves as the hiring manager and then the job that, in a way that plain text can't. And as we're going throughout the process, it's, we kind of invert it a little bit too, where we feel like we get a ton of signal from candidates and can make way better use of our live time together, where any take-home that we have candidates do, we ask them to do a Loom walkthrough of the artifact that they create. So that way we can use our 30 or 45 minutes for live collaboration on it versus getting presented to, which we've always found was a way better use of time. And it kind of forces the candidate to get more intimately involved and understand our product offering. We've always gotten great feedback from candidates on that front. And then the third thing that we do that I felt like was super powerful has been we create a playlist of Looms. So when we decided to go forward with making an offer, anybody who's been part of the recruitment panel will record a 30 or 45 second Loom about why they're super excited to work with this potential candidate. There's essentially six or seven hyper-personalized 
super short but really intimate looms that they can watch over the course of five minutes that has been a superpower for us in terms of closing candidates who might have been on the fence as well. One of our old cultural values that was my personal one that we had to actually shorten them because we had six, we needed to get it down to five. So we dropped this one. But creating moments is something that I am especially fond of. When I hear candidates say that they actually sat down with their families or their significant other to watch the looms because they're just so enamored with them. And it also made them feel good about themselves, about why we love them so much. To me, that's something that's really special about our company and our culture, but also the product and the change that we're trying to bring to the world as well. I oftentimes say that for both a founder or an employee of a startup to be successful, they have to have a tremendous amount of intrinsic motivation. It could come from passion for a specific domain. It could come from curiosity It's very clear in your recruiting process, you're basically looking to see if people will adopt this organ. Will they adopt Loom and and get excited about it, want to contribute to the growth of the product? It seems like a very natural thing to be able to screen for to see if someone might be a good fit to join your company. Absolutely. Yeah. We have heard from some folks that they're like, I am not a natural at Loom. And it took me seven times to record and send it in. And we feel awful in that scenario. But They also say that I actually felt like I was improving my communication at the same time while I was recording Loom because I could watch it and feel like if I did have to give the presentation again live, that I would do a better job as a result of it. Our mission statement is actually to empower effective communication for people wherever they are. And for me, that effective communication part is the intrinsic value. If we can help the world communicate better, I think is a really, really special thing. Absolutely. Maybe there's a synergy between Chalk and Loom where folks can get their practice reps in on communicating verbally via Loom and then one day join us for some synchronous conversations on Chalk. But Joe, I really appreciate all the perspectives that you shared. To the listeners, I hope everyone will give Loom a shot as a product. I truly think it's magical. When you receive a Loom video and someone's saying your name and talking to you through that medium, it's such a unique and amazing experience. I wanted to take a moment and invite folks on stage if they had a question or two for Joe. I apologize for dominating all of the questions so far, but I wanted to make sure that folks have that opportunity. So if you're inclined, feel free to join us up here. Maybe just mention your name very briefly and, and your question. We did have one from Eyal, and I'm not sure if we want to do the asynchronous one first before somebody jumps on. It'd be great to address Eyal. What do you think will be so different three years from now than today? Or do you already have the roadmap already pretty specced out for what Loom will be in three years? Oh, no, not three years. I heard this quote from somebody that's been working on their product for about 10 years now. Is they, they felt like every year that they were working on something that they could see one year further out. So if you're working on something for four years, you could see four years out. I don't think that's the case for Loom at all. I think for every year, maybe we can see a few months out. For us, we kind of have perspective on what we want to build in the first half of 2021, and we're certainly executing for the rest of Q4. But what I'm really excited about the prospect of Loom is we want to push that communication utility as close to where somebody wants to communicate with video messaging as possible. So I wanted us to go deeper on that integration strategy and make it so that maybe you don't have to install a desktop recorder or a mobile app. Can we build a record SDK that gets integrated across the entire ecosystem and makes video messaging one click for somebody that hasn't even installed any of our apps? 
that's something that I'm really excited about. And we're also going to continue to iterate on our team-oriented experience, which is something that we just launched a couple of weeks ago publicly. We branded it the new Loom, but it was really taking ourselves from an individualistic product experience to a team experience. We're going to push on those two vectors, and I'm really excited for what's on the horizon. Appreciate all the views. That's awesome. Jay, did you want to ask anything? I was going to ask during the journey of building and iterating on the product, if you had any serious reservations or you ever thought about doing something completely different, uh, kind of like the psychology through the messy middle. We had a lot of those moments in the earliest days from showing up the whiteboard to actually launching in June of 2016, which is over the course of nine months. I think the messy middle is not just mentally, but it's also physically. There's ways that it manifests in, in this specific scenario. I had a twin mattress on the floor of Shahid's room in San Mateo, and we were working day in and day out, seven days a week, no vacation. I felt super guilty even having my girlfriend come up and visit from Los Angeles that we took July 4th and drove around to like kind of soak up the day. Like There's a feeling of immense guilt. And so I would say that in terms of what specifically we were working on, it was interesting where we had an investor prior to us officially raising a pre-seed round. We were thinking about going in this open bid direction after we had gotten the feedback that we should build this Occam's Razor simple video messaging product. He was really excited about OpenTest and the platform that we were building there. He was like, I will write you a check if you continue to build OpenTest versus OpenVid. There was a lot of back and forth between the three co-founders of, do we take the money or do we build the thing that we believe in? That was the hardest conversation that we've had <laughs> as co-founders. What I can say is that it just took a lot of conversation and conviction. And conviction is built through not just our intuition, but also continuously having customer conversations where we weren't prompting it. It was coming up naturally. The investors, as much as you try and convey this to them, that you're the operator and you're the one who has the customer relationship and conversations. It was really hard to turn down that money, especially when you have a mattress on the floor of your co-founder's room. But we just felt like it was the right thing to do. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Fascinating talk so far. My name's Addis. Um, I'm an engineer at a company called Intercom. Um, I've used Loom quite a few times and I, I absolutely love it. My question to you is around what you mentioned around picking the right co-founders. Wondering what you think made Venetia's perfect co-founders for starting Loom? Addis, love all the intercomrades. We have a few of them over at Loom and the incredible company that you're at. Kudos on that front. I would say that the main criteria for picking great co-founders is it's really important that you have a similar work ethic across the one or two other individuals that you decide to go on this journey with. I mean, the willingness to show up on a Saturday and Sunday, the willingness to that September that we started whiteboarding, that November, the Thanksgiving, we were all in LA. We camped out in the My Life office for the entire Thanksgiving break barely left the office for five days and just hacking the entire time. I would say that that's really, really important that you're all willing to show up in the same way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that, right? You don't have to be willing to work 80 hours. Just making sure that it's even is the most important thing. The second thing is a shared ethos of the world. Like what is important to you in the level of transparency and honesty? What is the importance in terms of family values, like the things that are a little bit softer in nature about how you think about 
life and humans and relationships is the most important thing. I ended up doing a quoted retweet of my technical co-founder, Vinay, who when we finally took money off the table from Loom in our most recent round, he went straight to the bank account and took 99% of the money that he took off the table and gave it all to his parents. And my quote retweet was, find yourself a co-founder who's willing to do things like this that have characteristics that will lead them to take actions like this. And so to me, the work ethic and the values are by far the two most important things when looking for co-founders. I think one of the attributes we look for in founders is someone who isn't individualistic, someone who isn't selfish, like whose mission it is to serve others, whether they be customers or a community or the other important people in their lives. And I know that's true of an A. I think that's very true of you as well, Joe. I think it, when you describe the guilt you feel when you feel like you're not supporting folks to the degree you should, which I would argue is never, but that embodies that type of characteristic. I wanted to thank everyone for tuning in. And Joe, thank you so much for telling us about this journey that you've been on. I'm so excited to see Loom become a household name. I'm sure it will. So really, really appreciate sharing time with us today. Yeah, Damir, thanks for cultivating this community and for all the questions today. What I would say with this group is that I plan to keep an eye on it and continue to engage. And so for anybody who's on that has questions that they think of and just want to pop them in here, I got notifications turned on for chalk. So I'll keep coming back. Thanks again, Damir. I had a great time today. 